Comedian Margaret Cho is a living legend. She's been working for decades and has earned the nickname Patron Saint for Outsiders. She dealt with a lot of bullying growing up and in reaction to that, she began writing jokes at the age of 14 and she was performing at 16. What were you doing at 16? Apart from being a comedy genius, Margaret Cho has been incredibly active in anti-racism and anti-bullying campaigns, and has been an advocate for homeless and gay rights. She has been recognized by countless organizations for her efforts, including the ACLU, GLAAD, and the National Organization for Women. She's been the star of a network sitcom, performed sold-out performances of stand-up, and has toured the country with her groundbreaking off-Broadway one-woman show, I'm the One That I Want. She's been nominated for three Grammy Awards and an Emmy Award, and most recently she released American Myth, an album of music that Cho describes as her, quote, glamorous and glittering tribute to family, comedy, anger, fame, gayness, grief, fat pride, love, and hate. Which, if that doesn't get you interested, I truly don't know what will. American Masters executive producer Michael Cantor was lucky enough to have a full-on sit-down interview with Margaret Cho, and I'm so jealous I could just scream. So this is so great. We're in L.A. We're with Margaret Cho, and you've you grew up in San Francisco. You've worked a lot in New York. Is L.A. now your home? Yeah, um, I've been in Los Angeles since 1991. Um, I've lived in New York for brief periods, but never a permanent New Yorker. I've always worked there for several months doing a show and then left. Um, so my permanent residence is in Los Angeles. I've been in this particular neighborhood for quite a long time. I'm a real Angelino and a real Hollywood person, so I, I love it. Now, this season of, of the American Masters podcast is about revolutionary writing, and so I want to take you back to when you first started to write, like your first joke. Do you remember either the first joke you wrote or performed, and does that stick with you? Uh, well, when I just, I started comedy when I was 14, and so this was in the 80s and San Francisco, and there was a lot of comedians doing jokes about Asian drivers. So I'd go on after all this stuff, and then I would say, my name is Margaret Cho, and I drive very well. And that was like my opening joke. And then, um, but that sort of set up like exactly what I would be talking about for the rest of my career, really, is talking about this moment of, hey, racism exists, and how do we exist within it? How do we fight it by talking about it? Um, and it's, it's a, a theme that I come back to time and time again. And do you feel like the world has dramatically changed since you were first telling those jokes or those same jokes about racism maybe cause bigger laughs now than they ever did? I think it's both that society has changed, but at the same time, certain things have remained the same. And Hollywood is actually very slow to catch up with change. You know, when you have um, the, this thing where, you know, you're not even casting Asian actors in Asian roles, it's weird. It's weird when there's, like, a movie about the Great Wall of China starring Matt Damon. It's a weird kind of an, an odd thing of, like, well, why do we still not understand that Asians exist in Hollywood, Asian-Americans exist in Hollywood? Um it's a weird thing, but it's starting to get around it, starting to grow. Now, I've loved a lot of the stuff that where you've talked or you've imitated your mother. Yes. How has that been an important source of comedy for you? Well, I think it's really, it goes back to the way that, 
you know, Asian American kids try to Americanize themselves by looking at their families as being very foreign. And and when you have that sort of weird thing where you're embarrassed by your family because they are so like fresh off the boat, like that to me is a very Asian American experience. And so, you know, we used to make fun of my mom because she would say we would go to the store called Montgomery Wards, which is like this shopping place. And she would say Montgomery Ward. She couldn't say it. Montgomery Ward. And we would laugh so hard about it. And so that's the origins of, I think, Asian American comedy and where my roots are. And that's, I think, a lot of Asian American comedians now refer to that, go back to that experience of differentiating ourselves from our families. In one of your shows, you talked about your given Korean name. Mm -hmm. And what's that? It's Moran. Moran, which it's uh, for, uh, Korean for peony, um, which is a, a very nice poetic name, but it's hard to grow up as a kid in the 70s with a name like Moron. You know, you just hear it time and time again. That, like, And it's really weird. I mean, I, uh, I adopted my stage name very early. I actually kind of like think that a lot of Korean Americans have that experience of having a Korean name and then also having this American name. And um, that we almost have different personas that are attached to each name. Like it's a different thing of like how you are at home versus how you are at school and how our lives are kind of like we're, we're trying to almost mask our foreignness in a way, which is, I think, the most accurate portrayal of assimilation is that you're trying to mask your origins. But that's not completely like the answer. It's, it's really about figuring out how to celebrate where we are from, and also realize that we're not foreign, that we actually are American. I mean, do you think you could do a joke about your mother that if somebody else did it, it wouldn't work? I don't know. I mean, I think she's really funny. I think that she's very astute. And I mean, it, it's it's about this voice and this character, but at the same time, it's also about her observations and what she thinks. And so I don't know. You know, I think that when you're talking about... Uh, kind of characters that come from your origin, your family of origin. Um, it's hard for, it would be hard for a person of any other race to do a Korean voice and accent without being judged as whether or not this is a caricature, is this stereotyping, is this racism? I think that's a very particular kind of experience like where people can, can't really sort of quote what you do um maybe it's similar to like when um in hip-hop music the n-word is used in a song and then nobody can sing the song i just went to a big rap festival and it was like mostly white audience and the side the like everybody's singing along to everything except that word and then they just nobody says it and it's just this it's a place of honoring that people cannot say the word unless they're from that culture, from that heritage. And, um, but there's a lot of fear around it, too. So I think that you know, when you're talking about race and you're talking about your race, there's a lot of validity to that experience. But when somebody else is talking about it, it becomes a little bit sketchy. But one last question about your mom, which is, did, and I, don't, I didn't check to see if both your parents are still alive, but yeah, they, they are. do they watch your shows? And yeah. what, what's their reaction, not so much to the ethnic material, but like you go way over in terms of things that like my parents. <laughs> they don't understand a lot of it. They, they really, 
really don't. And then they do. You know, my parents also bought a gay bookstore in the 70s. So they were around the gay community and all the tattooed community. People were getting full body suits. In the 80s, 70s, and 80s, it was a very, very, very uh, edgy time. And my parents were right in the middle of it. So they do have a real understanding of diversity and gay issues, gay life. They get that. And then so it's not hard for them to kind of get their minds around what I do as a performer. It's totally fine for them. But uh, they also just, also some things they don't understand. They, I don't know this. I'm glad everybody else like it. <laughs> I'm glad somebody like it. So they're happy that somebody likes it. And you, you felt somehow an outsider in that San Francisco community growing up, right? Like you, you yeah. have jokes about how they, your mom would put fish, fish in well, as snacks. Yeah, and... that's growing up. I mean, that's you know when you're growing up and all the kids have like what Twinkies and Coke wrapped in foil, like you know, like a Coca Cola wrapped in tin foil, or like whatever they're bringing to school. And then I have like dried squid. It's so embarrassing. Like, you really don't... When you're a kid, you don't want to be different from your peers. You want to be the same. And it's not that my peers were all white. They weren't. They were all... It was very diverse. But we were so Asian. Like, we were so fresh off the boat in that regard. And their food, which I guess nobody really liked it until Anthony Bourdain said it was okay. (laughs) It's weird how culturally food... um, it can be embarrassing. And then you go back and you go, well, actually, it's pretty gourmet and really exciting, you know, and that's what our food culture is now is all about these flavors. And and uh, yet then it was just appalling. It was so embarrassing. Here's the big question I pose to everyone for this season, which is why do you write? Why is that? I know you also sing and you you, uh-huh. you, you act, but... You, you could just make a living acting. And what is it about, what does writing do for you? Well, writing is really important, and it's something that is always happening and always growing. If you're a stand-up comedian, you're always writing in your mind. Whatever it is, there's something to talk about, and there's something to remember. And, you know, if you perform a lot, as I do, you have a lot of chances to get those ideas out there. Also, nowadays, everything's shifting and growing so crazily, especially in the Trump administration and all that stuff, there's a place to talk about all of this change. This season's about revolutionary writing. One of your albums and tours and so on was called Revolution. What was the thinking behind that one? There's always this kind of need to talk about power and talk about politics and look at it from a very revolutionary standpoint. I think when you're talking about Uh, the body and weight and feminism and racism and all of these identities that we get locked into. There's so much of a need for a kind of a manifesto of a kind of an uprising. And and I love the imagery of revolution. I I love the idea of it. Um, So for me, like all of that stuff, like politics and, and comedy go hand in hand. And now more than ever, I think... It's really necessary. I mean, I, it's it's terrible when you're like looking back fondly at the Bush administration and going, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Like George W. Bush is like that hideous ex that doesn't seem so bad compared to your current situation. <laughs> so you know, it's it's like 
I was always very critical of politics and politicians. And now I'm like, I almost have no words. Like, I'm almost like, how could, could we have, have realized that or thought that this was coming? And, and it's very strange. Well, do you think as a comic writer, you can step over the line? Like, I'm thinking about, you know, Kathy Griffin. And, oh, yeah. And in terms of your own work, has there ever been stuff that you've put out there and you're like, you know, maybe I should have dialed that back a little? Oh, all the time. And I think that's what you want to do is you really want to, you want to just keep on testing and trying to go farther and always failing. It's really part of comedy. And that whole thing with Kathy was about holding his decapitated head, which I think I felt like it was just a TBT French Revolution. It was just a hashtag John the Baptist moment. It's like something very, it's a that, that startling imagery, which is really from the Bible, you know, that we get all of this sort of like, bloody stuff and and people don't or or like don't like think of the origin story about it but i love it when kathy um gets fired from anything because i'm next in line for whatever job that is i always get her sloppy seconds and i can't wait to host new year's eve with on cnn with anderson cooper i'm really excited but she's a good friend of mine and i think that she's really always on the cutting edge and always out there and it's amazing I, I i mean i'm always in awe of her and and what she's able to do but you know we've got to just do what we can i think it's got to be funny because we're gonna you're gonna you know we might die it's like a very serious situation like he may blow up the whole planet so we'll see sitcom writing is sort of another classic american thing and you you were a pioneer in that field tell us about your experience in the early 90s oh, doing yeah. a sitcom it was crazy um it was so crazy because it's well the television was a totally different thing then because you had four networks and fox had just started so it, it was very like the programming was such a big deal like when you had a tv show on one of the networks it was huge like it was really um, this huge, huge, huge entity that was beyond anything that I could even compare to what's happening now. Because now, like, even, like, the three networks, it's like when there is something on, nobody really cares. It, actually, they're dwarfed by giants like, um, you know, all of these online streaming formats and stuff. So it's not it's not the same. Um, but then it was a very, very big deal. And, and doing this Asian-American show then, it was so hard to get the networks in and everybody to understand that the audience for the show wasn't going to exclusively be Asian Americans. That was their fault. Like they, they, their, their thinking was this is only going to appeal, appeal to this particular community. When in truth, all of the people who watch television don't share the same ethnicity of the people that are on the show. So it's like this weird thing that they kind of thought so narrow narrow-mindedly about all of it but you know it was a hard show to do um I'm glad well I'm glad I experienced it um it certainly created a legacy and now we have shows like Fresh Off the Boat um which are incredibly successful and it's exciting to me because this is this is my heritage and this is what I I have given to television so I'm very proud of that and you were part of Dr. Ken, right? Yes, I was his sister. We all, 
Um, all of us and Asian American actors, we all have played every different. I'm like B.D. Wong, especially he and I have played brother and sister. Um, he and I have been newlyweds. We've been <laughs> boyfriend, girlfriend. We've been bitter enemies. <laughs> we've been everything. And I love that. That's great. I loved your joke about um, what uh, you were called by the creator of Fresh Off the Boat. He 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 wanted to talk to me because I was the only person in the world who understood what it was like to create an Asian-American family show with ABC. So he called me. He's like, Chobi Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. And uh, so we talked about it. And, you know, like the network didn't want to call the show Fresh Off the Boat because they thought it was racist. And we love it when white people tell us what's racist. (laughs) It's just really cute. And then I think white people like to tell Asian people how to feel about race because they're too scared to tell black people. So this is a, (laughs) a big statement about... Race, because race is always brought up, but only in the situation we're talking about black and white. But there is a much larger topic when we're talking about race. It feels like, you know, in the last couple of weeks, Jerry Lewis died, Shelley Berman died, sort of these this generation of older Jewish guys who pioneered stand up and so on. Um, you're at the center of the world now. How does it feel in terms of diversity? It feels good. I mean, I think that there is a lot of diversity. Um, I have a lot of great respect for all of those comedians. Um, you know, I was kind of around the Friars Club in the late 80s and early 90s, and so you could never park in Milton Burrell's parking space. He had a very special parking space right in front, and uh, I think that they still keep it out there, <laughs> like, didn't uh, to honor him. But... Uh, all of that history of comedy is very important, but now we have a, a such a diverse kind of like way of looking at the world and comedians like Wanda Sykes, who's a very good friend of mine, and and all of these different voices out there, which are so important and so vital, and I, I'm really proud to be part of that. What do you think of when you think of your mentor Joan Rivers? Well, I think about what she had always tried to impart to me was that they're always going to want you. They're always going to want your voice, that you're never going to be too old, that they will always need you in Hollywood. And and in fact, when you get older, they'll need you more because actresses, they throw away. And that's very true from like, I look at my, um, the actresses that I kind of came up around, you know, people that were kind of getting everything like Mira Servino. And she was sort of my nemesis, you know, because she she was like, I had dated Quentin, and then she had dated Quentin. And it was like this weird thing where she was, she won the Academy Award and all this stuff. And then, and now I'm like, where is she? Like, it's weird. Like, actresses that are incredibly talented, incredibly important for the time, suddenly are aged out of the system. Um, it's odd, you know? And I think that um, Joan was always trying to make sure that I understood that would never happen to us, that we would always be able to work, that we would always be able to express ourselves and that comedy was always going to be there. And I found that to be very true. What brought you guys together? Was there some moment of crisis or? We were in the 90s. This was such a long time ago. So she had come to see my show and she had really loved it. And uh, so she, I won an award and she would, uh, she wanted to present it to me. So we had um, this event, and so we had dinner together, and she presented me with this award, and it was really great. And then uh, she um, 
had just started her jewelry line for QVC. And she's like, I'll send you all. I'll send you everything. Just, just tell me where to send it. And I, I said, I actually don't wear jewelry. And then she turned her back to me and didn't speak to me again for two years. And after she got over the fact that I didn't wear jewelry, we became friends. And she's great. I mean, she was so funny. And uh, I miss her, you know. I think, how strange, you know. I was talking to Melissa about this, her daughter, Melissa Rivers. And it's been three years, and it still feels so weird. But it's, I mean, she has an incredible legacy. And it's, you know, it's incredible to have known her and to know all of her stories and her experience and to have learned from it. So when it comes to writing, how do you get stuff to come out of you? Do you get high? Do you get talk into your phone? Do you go for a walk? What What is it that... I think all of those things. I mean, I don't... I think getting high is a little bit... It, it's a little counterproductive. I mean, George Carlin always said, well, when I go punch something up, then that's the time. And I agree with that. I think that that's true. You want to think about things from different perspectives. But I also know that I always forget everything. So <laughs> it's not the best thing for me, the best state of mind for me to remember or retain what I'm doing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it is a little bit linked to physical activity. Um, I like to ride my bike and, and kind of get out there and do that. That helps. Um, also, I love the fact that we all have phones and that that's a huge repository of material and jokes and ideas. And that's all there, um, whether it's voice memos or just writing things down. Um, there's a lot of space there. I, I actually do write on with paper, like just so, so weird, I know. But um, there's all sorts of ways, but you have to find a way to like remember everything. You don't want anything to get away. So writing is always happening. It's always there. You've gotten all these amazing awards, GLAAD Award, the Liberty Award, now ACLU. What? How, how do you go out now and sort of feel like you're making a difference? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you just kind of get out there and work and, um, you know, and it's great to have all of these accolades. You know, it's really incredible to receive them and what a great honor so great um I don't know I don't I don't I I think you just have to get out there and do it you know especially now like there's a lot of resist march was really big and I did that with Chris Rock which was really cool um the the uh all of the women's marches all that kind of stuff like that to me has been really profound just being also to the witness of like how crazy it can get too. like I was in the riots in Portland on the week of election the election and all of like these people were like so angry and out in the street and protesting and the police were like you know shooting beanbag guns into the crowd and and it it was so crazy so seeing it from all these different angles and 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 also being able to participate with things like the resist march i think that's where there's a lot of making sense of what's going on so you've you've imitated uh, Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un. Yes. And you've done it to great effect. Do you feel like, Mel, you know, Mel Brooks has pointed out that the only way to take uh, Hitler down was with comedy and yeah. sarcasm. Yeah. Do you think there's a way right now to somehow diffuse this intense... I don't know. I, I think it's so crazy. I don't know why you would want to pick a fight with the most insane country like that 
that's the the weird part. Um, but yeah, to be able to lampoon it, I think is is really healing ultimately. Um, but uh, it's very strange. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But yeah, L- Mel Brooks is right. I think that that's true. It's like the only way to kind of get through it or make sense of it is to make fun of it. To take it down, you have to really like laugh about it. And I think that's good. I just think that in the way that Melissa McCarthy, you know, sort of exploded as Sean Spicer yeah. last year, that they should bring you to SNL every weekend. I know. I would love it. That would be great. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, you are seriously inked. What does that mean to you? Why? Well, it's it's kind of my well, my upbringing. Because when I was growing up with my family, they uh, all of the people that worked for my father were all getting very heavily tattooed. And they were getting full body suits from Ed Hardy, who... So I always knew that I would be tattooed. And so... And I'd never anticipated that tattooing would explode in popularity the way that it has. Um, I didn't realize that that was possible. But that's sort of like... I think it's died down a little bit. But it's still a a very kind of prevalent thing. And the way that we think about tattooed people is different. Um, But I... uh, I love it. I mean, I, I've got a lot of them. Um, I got my first big ones from Ed Hardy. Um, I've had many amazing tattooers work on me, um, just incredible artists. It's a social thing. They're my friends and people I love, and, you know, so I was around tattooers a lot um, and painters. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's, it's something that I really love. I think I've kind of stopped. Get, I haven't gotten one in a couple of years because it just hurts. <laughs> and I've gotten so many. But in Korean culture, you said early on, there's the issue of sort of gang tattoos. Or... Yeah. Well, when uh, Korea was, it was decimated by the Korean War and then built back up. And most of the, the uh, kind of the recreation of modern day Korea was in sort of gangsters and Yakuza and all of their um, kind of stuff was they were, they were like, you could only know them from their tattoos, which um, they all had as part of their initiation. And, and so there's that stigma in Korea about criminals and gangsters having tattoos. And um, you're even banned from bathhouses, which is a very par- big part of Korean culture. And I've had my own issues in bathhouses here um, where they're very alarmed by tattoos and, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to get past that, you know. And, and so I've talked about it a lot of my work about how you get discriminated against in, in Korean communities for having tattoos. But I think that's changing. I think it's really, really changing. And how did you come up with the ones on your knees? Oh, this is so stupid. It's um, I have Abraham Lincoln and George Washington on my knees from the dollar bill and the five dollar bill it's just it's stupid after like a certain point you just get tattoos to be stupid and that's definitely one of they're not finished it's just dumb <laughs> you you said it in one interview that eating disorders that's that for you has been the source of substance abuse and so much of your work and so on how does that how do you turn that into something funny? Or I think, I don't know. It takes a while. Like when you've been through, after you've been through it, you go, well, why was I so destructive over something that doesn't really even mean anything? Like I think that as like I've gotten older, that my issues around that have really dissipated. Um, 
you know, when I was younger, everything was about how thin I was and how thin I appeared and, and dieting and everything. And, and now I'm like, I really don't care. Like, it's really just about feeling good. Um, but so much of our image, especially in Hollywood for women, is tied up in how thin we are and how, uh, you know, this whole machine in Hollywood kind of propagates that. It's, 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 it's this vicious cycle. And so it's, it's very hard to get out of. But, you know, I'm valuing my experience within it. I, I know I've had some pretty hard time kind of looking at my issues and, you know, spending time away uh, in places that I needed to figure out how to eat and how I'm going to live. And so now I've, I'm at the other side of it. And I'm like very... I'm very happy that I lived through it. And, you know, it's a deadly disorder. Um, anorexia and bulimia both are very destructive. And so it's good to be done. So what's your inspiration for your new writing, your new tour, your new work? Trying to make sense of Trump. Trying to make sense of where we are as Asians in Hollywood. We're talking about race and whitewashing and all this kinds of stuff. Um, talking about all of my own past self-destruction and how to kind of look at life in a different way, whether that's kind of coming out of depression and coming out of darkness into someplace very light. And it, you know, for me, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's my family and everything that I've experienced. And so it's, it's another wave of material that I can't wait to share with people. It's very exciting. It feels like issues regarding immigration couldn't be more important right now. Yeah, it's really important. It's really what needs to happen. We need to talk about race. And, and in an era where we have a president that's you know, making excuses for neo-Nazis and David Duke, and it's like very crazy, like, I don't understand why this is happening or why uh, this sort of thinking is out there. Um, but, you know, we've got to talk about race. It's really important. You've also been a huge advocate for the gay and transgender communities. All these things are an important part of the political conversation right now. Yeah. And, you know, I think with the victories that we've made and, and in terms of trans visibility and awareness and also uh, gay marriage, which is a very, very big thing, um, you know, that this is a weird thing to have to, like, fight or try to we're going backwards. And I, I don't know why. Listen to a lot of your songs, which I've loved, but a lot of your songs I don't think could work in a PBS-oriented <laughs> podcast. Well, yeah, it's a little... It's not like Mark Russell. You know, I wish I could be a dignified <laughs> political comedian, songwriter like Mark Russell. I always looked at him and, like, he's doing his little songs about Reagan, and I was, like, always thinking, well, he's got something. He's he's really... He, he really is onto something. And so my... Music is is not quite as um, classy, but uh, I do love it. I mean, I, I I love to make music. It's something that I don't have as much time for um, with all my other stuff happening. Um, but I I love it. I think songwriting is an incredible pastime. It's an incredible art form. It's it's I've written with some of the best in the world. I'm very lucky to have had that, and it's really exciting. You write these great comic songs. How is writing a song different from writing a monologue? Well, you have the structure of a song, which is sort of the verse, and then the kind of chorus, and then you have the that middle eight that uh, 
bridge that is always very, very important. Sometimes I'm, it's so important that I just skip over it altogether. But so you have song structure, which um, is sort of has to be pleasing to the ear, has to kind of come across as like, okay, well, these jokes are there, but then it, it has a life beyond the joke, you know, that there's more to it. So I just, I love music and I'm always sort of backstage person, like always back there, like getting to watch from the the behind the scenes, which I, I love. And I, I love that world. So we're doing this thing called Inspiring Woman PBS, where we're asking everybody to tell a quick story about some woman, could be a family member, could be someone you've worked with, anyone who's really inspired you. Is anybody spring to mind? Well, I'm really inspired by my mother who left uh, this very, very um, kind of rigid family structure where she was arranged to be married to this other guy, and then she decided to marry my dad instead, which was a, a big revolution. This is in the 60s where they just didn't do that kind of stuff, and them coming to America with really nothing and, and creating this entire world for us, um, myself and my brother, and, and it's a great thing. And so I'm incredibly impressed and and that's way braver than anything that I could have done to sort of blindly to you know go against your family and 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 kind of go and get married for love and and to you know be in this new world where you don't have everybody there from your past you just have yourselves this is incredibly self-reliant you know they didn't have the internet in the 60s they were way far away from even being able to like talk on the phone to their relatives it's a very 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 crazy thing so i'm i'm very very grateful for that well this has been so amazing thank you so much for joining us thank you really appreciate it that was michael Cantor interviewing margaret cho if you are currently in love with margaret cho i completely get it i feel the same way um you got to go see your comedy tour in select cities right now it's called fresh off the bloat um, she's incredible. Go see her. For the American Masters Podcast, I'm your host, Anna Dresen. Thanks, and we'll see you in two weeks. The American Masters Podcast is produced by Joe Skinner, with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters Podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Sunoshima. And I have been your host, Anna Dresen. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash Masters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast. <laughs>